This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Dravet syndrome is a severe genetic epilepsy characterized by lifelong seizures and neurodevelopmental impairment that starts in infancy. Camp 4 is developing an RNA therapy that it believes can reduce the frequency and severity of seizures or eliminate them by upregulating a gene that underlies the condition. We spoke to Anne Barbier, Chief Medical Officer of Camp 4 Therapeutics, about Dravet Syndrome, the company's platform technology to develop therapies that can upregulate gene expression, and the potential to apply its approach to a broad range of conditions. Anne, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. We're going to talk about Dravet syndrome, CAMP4, and its platform to address genetic diseases with programmable therapeutics that upregulate gene expression by targeting regulatory RNAs. Perhaps we can begin with regulatory RNAs. What are they and and what role do they play in controlling healthy gene expression? Regulatory RNAs or regulatory RNA is a broad name for a group of RNAs that do not code for proteins. They can come from different parts of the genome. And um, it's only in the last decade or so that people have begun to appreciate what they do. And basically what they do is they regulate gene expression at the level of transcription, and they can do that both in a positive way, enhancing transcription, or in a negative way, decreasing transcription. Now, how they work, in order to understand that, um, let's think of how transcription typically works. You have your gene of interest, and in Dravet, that's SC1A. You also have other stretches of DNA that are located at a little bit of a distance, and those are called enhancers or promoters. And then you have the transcription proteins themselves. So people think of this as having three components, the coding section of the DNA, enhancers and promoters, and then transcriptional factors. And what we have begun to understand is that there might be or there often is a fourth partner, and that is where those regulatory RNAs come in. They participate in this complex and can um, regulate it in a positive or a negative way. Um, And that also means, uh, to bring us to what we want to do, is that by interfering with the regulatory RNAs in that regulation of transcription, you may, as the case may be, upregulate or downregulate the transcription of your gene of interest. 
Camp Force focused on developing RNA actuators, which it says have been largely unexploited as therapeutic targets. What are RNA actuators and why have they not been seen as therapeutic targets until now? So, so just to clarify, the target are those um, regulatory RNAs that we just talked about. The RNA actuators is the name of the drugs that are intended to interfere with those regulatory RNAs. And in the case of what we want to do, these are antisense oligonucleotides. Now, why have they been underappreciated as therapeutic targets? Well, I think that is mainly because for a long time, the prevailing wisdom was that RNA fell into a couple of buckets, and that was the coding messenger RNA, the um, transfer RNAs, and the ribosomal RNAs. And all these other other RNA transcripts that people identified were considered to be junk or transcriptional noise without much function. And it's only in the last decade or so that people have begun to understand that these are actually biologically active molecules, specifically at the level of regulating the transcription of genes. CAMP4 has created its RAP platform to identify regulatory RNA that targets specific genes and generating oligonucleotide drug candidates to use them to control the expression levels of genes. How does the platform work? Well, the first step is to map in specific human cell types what you can find in terms of regulatory RNAs and the genes they control. And that is done by applying um, some very sophisticated uh, sequencing techniques. And then the second step is to apply machine learning to this to really figure out out of this mass of data, which enhancer or which promoter controls which gene. And once you have those pieces of information, you can start to figure out where the regulatory RNAs might be produced. And then the third step is to design antisense oligonucleotides that block the interaction of the regulatory RNA with its targets. It it would seem that that identifying those targets is is the real challenge here. How difficult is it to know which RNA to target and how gene-specific are those targets? Well, that is where that machine learning model comes in because it is capable of using all the data generated by the transcriptional maps to then identified which regulatory element is controlling which genes. And once you have made that map, um, it is by by and large an in silico exercise to figure out where these regulatory RNAs then are made. In terms of the specificity, well, what we have found is that these regulatory RNAs are typically very specific for either a single gene or sometimes for a couple of genes that you can find within the so-called insulated neighborhoods in the DNA, at least um, for the regulatory RNAs that are transcribed from enhancers and promoters. And they tend to act while they're still being transcribed. So one end of the molecule is still tethered to the DNA so that it can diffuse far away and start interacting with other um, sequences, other parts of the gene. Now, in terms of the specificity, 
of the interaction of the antisense oligonucleotide with its target that is achieved by base pairing. So the well-known mechanism of specificity uh, between uh, DNA and RNA or double-stranded um, uh, nucleotide strands. There have been challenges in the delivery of RNA therapies to different cells and tissues throughout the body. How much of an issue is this for the indications you're pursuing? Well, we have chosen our indications in order to be able to deliver there. Um, the regions where success has been achieved is the central nervous system, the liver, and the eye. And for the, for the central nervous system and the eye, it really has to do with the route of administration. Um, if you inject antisense oligonucleotides in the spinal canal, in the cerebrospinal fluid, somewhere in your lumbar region, um, the antisense oligonucleotides mixes with the cerebrospinal fluid, which is constantly in motion, and that carries it from the lumbar region to the brain. It bathes the brain in this um, ASO-containing liquid, and so that's how you deliver it. Um, for the eye, it's something very similar. By direct injections into the relevant part of the eye, you can deliver it there. For the liver, um, there is a specific type of molecule called GALNAC, which you can attach to your antisense oligonucleotides. And the result of that is that if you administer this GALNAC conjugated antisense oligonucleotides, whether it's intravenously or subcutaneously, it will find its way pretty selectively to the liver. The liver takes up these GALNAC conjugated molecules very effectively. So that is a specific technique to deliver to the liver. And by focusing on the regulatory RNA, how broad a set of indications do you think you might be able to pursue? Well, probably a couple of thousand. Um, there are so many genetically determined diseases. And if you just look at those diseases that are called haploinsufficiency diseases, which essentially just means that you have about 50% of the messenger RNA and protein that you need, um, that is a group of several hundreds of diseases. Given that broad potential, how do you go about determining which indications to focus on? Well, we start, as I said, by looking for haploinsufficiency diseases. So these are diseases where one gene is mutated and the other one is functioning fine. So that is one group of diseases. Then we look at um, the question of whether we can get our antisense oligonucleotides there. So um, this means the liver, the CNS, and potentially the eye, although that is not something that we as a, as a group want to focus on right now. So that eliminates some other diseases. Then we look at uh, factors such as unmet medical need, um, the number of patients that exist, um, what the manifestations of the disease are. Um, neurodegenerative diseases, for instance, um, are always much harder to treat because once a neuron is gone, um, that's really hard to, to recover. And Dravet, for instance, is not a neurodegenerative disease. Um, 
neuronal function in the brain is affected, but the neurons don't really die off. So that, for instance, is an attractive feature for a treatment like this. Your lead indication is a preclinical program for the rare epilepsy Dravet syndrome. What is it and, and how does it manifest itself and progress? Yeah. Dravet syndrome is a rare genetically determined epilepsy. It starts in the first year of life. And typically, it manifests in a child that was born healthy, has developed healthy for several months, and manifests as a febrile seizure. So a seizure while um, the temperature is elevated. It can be because of a fever. It can be in a hot bath. Um, Now, this in itself happens actually in a lot of otherwise healthy children. So the first seizure perhaps does not cause so much concern. But as time goes on, the child starts to develop more seizures and more severe seizures and longer lasting seizures and different types of seizures. So it becomes clear uh, pretty fast that there's a a serious form of epilepsy going on. On top of that, the family then starts to notice that the child doesn't develop normally. That is, those developmental milestones of the early years are not met in terms of uh, talking, communication, in types of, in terms of motor function, in terms of information processing and cognitive function. And over the years, additional features are noted, behavioral um, abnormalities. Sometimes these children are described as having autistic-like features or hyperactivity-type features. Motor function can be affected. Um, sometimes in the late teens, these children can end up in wheelchairs. Um, and then finally, there is a, a particularly frightening feature, which is called SUDEP, sudden death in epilepsy, whereby these children might just die. Um, probably as a result of a seizure. And this can happen during the night. So uh, parents have this intense fear of not being able to wake up their child in the morning. Um, Those are the main features of this disease. So a terrible, terrible disease that we hope to do something about. And how are patients with the condition generally treated today? And what's the prognosis for them? Yes. The current treatment of Dravet syndrome is really focused on controlling the seizures. Um, So there are maybe two dozen um, older anti-epilepsy medications that are used in these patients. There are three drugs that in the U.S. at least have been approved specifically for Dravet syndrome. Um, but they don't control the seizures completely. Um, it, some of these drugs work very well for some patients and they don't work at all for other patients. Um, then there is the supportive therapy, um, speech therapy, helping with the motility, um, things like that. Um, the, there is currently no therapy that really goes to the root cause of the disease, which is the fact that Uh, one of the two SCN1A genes is not sufficiently expressed and that you have only about 50% of the product of that gene, which is that voltage-gated channel in the brain. What would your RNA actuator target in the case of Dravet syndrome and and what would it do biologically? Mm 
So the molecule that we have for Dravet syndrome is an antisense oligonucleotide that works on a very specific type of regulatory RNA called naturally occurring antisense transcripts. And that is just one of those types of regulatory RNAs that can um, suppress the expression of the gene, the SCN1A gene. And so the antisense oligonucleotide will um, bind to that NAT, naturally occurring antisense transcript, by base pairing and, and block it from exerting its function and thereby increase the level of transcription of the SCN1A gene. So it's a it's a, a matter of blocking the blocker or removing the inhibitor. We recently focus we recently featured Stoke Therapeutics on the show, which is also developing an oligonucleotide to upregulate uh, the healthy gene in this condition. Are you essentially doing the same thing? Do you just talk about it in different ways? At a fundamental level, we do the same thing. We want to increase the amount of functional messenger RNA that codes for the healthy form of the protein. The way we get there is slightly different. What Stoke does is to improve the improper splicing of some of the messenger RNA transcripts. And what we do is to increase the overall production of messenger RNA transcripts. So if you think of this as a two-step process, we work maybe at step one, and Stokes molecule works at step two. But ultimately, we want to get to the same destination. And to what extent can you upregulate gene expression? How significant an increase is needed to obtain a meaningful therapeutic benefit? Yes. Well, in a disease like Dravet and all these haploinsufficiency diseases, if you start out with 50% and you can double that, you would be back to the levels of a healthy individual. And that is a very reasonable expectation that that would have a therapeutic effect. How, what it turns out, though, is that you actually don't really need to or probably don't need to get from 50% to exactly 100%. If you can get from 50% of a healthy person to maybe 70% of a healthy person, that might already enough to make quite a difference. And, and the reason why I say this is that based on animal experiments in a Dravé mouse, we have seen that if you upregulate that messenger RNA level by maybe 25%, you can decrease the seizures in that animal model by 70%. So that is that is certainly very encouraging. And what's the clinical path forward? Well, the first thing we need to do um, is talk to the FDA and present to them the plan that we have to move forward. And that is happening um, in a couple of weeks. That happens this summer. Based on the feedback we receive there, we can either move forward with the plan we have already put in place, or we might have to adjust it a little bit. That's that's why you go and talk to the FDA. Um, but if all goes well, our plan is to submit the IND um, by the end of this year and to be in the clinic sometime early in 2023. In 2021, the company raised $45 million in a venture round. How far will existing funding take you? 
Well, I, I can't give you the exact numbers or the exact uh, uh, date, but we're, we're well capitalized and certainly looking forward to taking the molecule into the clinic and um, taking it to some important readouts. And Barbier, Chief Medical Officer of Camphor Therapeutics. And thanks so much for your time today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.